Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Now the serpent was most cunning of all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Though God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, and the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the garden's trees we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden God has said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not be doomed to die. For God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that tree was good for eating, and that it was lust to the eyes, and the tree was lovely to look at. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her man, and he ate. The word of the Lord. A Frenchman... A Brit and a Russian are looking at a painting of Adam and Eve. The Frenchman says, Ah, they are so beautiful. They are so naked. They must be French. Absolutely not, says the Brit. Look at them. They're so calm, so serene. And they're in a garden. Of course, they are English. Niet, says the Russian. Look, they have no clothes, no shelter. They're being told what they can and cannot eat, and they're being told it's paradise. Clearly, they are Russian. (laughs) Now, this joke actually reveals something that I have been discovering as I've been studying Genesis with you over this past month, and is that Genesis is ambiguous and deliberately so, where different people from different cultures, can project different details into the story in order to extract different faithful meanings. So, for example, two weeks ago, we talked about how there was no official scholarly meaning for what the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents. It could mean mature wisdom, divine power, moral autonomy, the the freedom to reject relationship with God. There's a bunch of different concepts that are all plausible within the text and consistent within our wider theology. And so if I can imagine the tree representing different things, that allows us to play with some different ideas about the character and nature of God and the human condition, all of which may be helpful at different points in my life. Today is going to be similar. As we get to Genesis chapter 3, which depicts what is commonly known as the fall, we're going to encounter a lot of familiar but ambiguous images and scenes. Some of them that we're going to have to unlearn because we only know one version of it and it's not very good for our soul. And then some others that we're going to have to reimagine so that they can speak something true about God and wise about the human condition. So let's dive in, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. In verse 1, we are introduced to the serpent, which is described as the most cunning or crafty of all the animals. This word is selected because of its poetry. Humans have just been described at the end of chapter 2 as naked, which is the Hebrew word arumen. But the Hebrew word for cunning is arum. So the arumen humans 
are confronted by the Arum serpent. But of course, any reader would naturally ask, okay, so what is this serpent and why is it talking? Now, some of you are going to say, oh, I know, it's Satan. Maybe. Traditionally, it wasn't until Second Temple Judaism that developed a concrete theology on a singular Hasatan, the Satan that opposes God. And then by the time of Jesus, many Jews did identify the serpent in this story with Satan. However, Genesis 3 is much much older than that. And so when it is first told, there isn't even a concept of Satan yet. And this can get understandably confusing for us because every story Jews and Christians have told about Satan, even if it's chronologically placed before Genesis, is actually told after Genesis is first written. So to put it another way, you might say that all the backstory that you have heard on Satan is basically like the original Star Wars movies. Genesis is the original Star Wars in the 1970s and the 80s. And then someone is like, okay, well, how did this scary Darth Vader guy come to be? Where does this scary serpent come from? Okay, so let's make some prequels to explain how that dude got there. The Bible, in my opinion, actually does a much better job of this, particularly because there is no biblical equivalent of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> so, why do we have this serpent if it isn't exactly Satan, even though it seems to function in the role of an adversary to humans and to God? Well, most likely the explanation is that in the ancient Near East, snakes were viewed as symbols of wisdom and divination, both where ancient Israel would have been, but also in Egypt, where there is literally a deity that just has a snake with some legs glued onto it, right? It's like something your kids would draw. So the early Hebrew sages then appropriated this cult symbol and instead of the serpent being a sign of wisdom or some pagan god, they turn it into a symbol of deception and opposition to Yahweh God. So, how does this serpent try to deceive people and oppose God? By convincing humans in Eden to not trust in either the goodness or the power of God. Why this route? Because if I can start believing that God doesn't really care for my well-being or that God doesn't have the ability to care for my well-being, then I don't have much reason to obey this God. I either need to start looking for a new God or I can just be my own God. So with that in mind, let's see how the serpent's rhetoric forms. In verse 2, and he said to the woman, though God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, and the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the garden's trees we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it lest you die. The first attempt 
at deception by the serpent is to argue that God is being too rigid, that, that God is being too restrictive. Can you believe that God said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? What a control freak! But the woman instantly corrects him about God. In fact, the Hebrew is written in such a way to indicate that the woman interrupts him. She cuts him off. And so to the dismay of all the complementarian theobros out there, the Bible records that it is a woman who is the very first theologian. And what does she say? Now, that's not who God is. That's not what God said. Not, not every tree, just this tree. And not because God is some killjoy, because God doesn't want us to die. So the serpent tries a different approach. Verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not be doomed to die. For God knows on the day that you shall eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. This is a brilliant counter-argument by the serpent. Oh, you think God is telling you the truth still? That's cute. God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because God cares about you. No. God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows you'll be like God's. God's holding out on you. God's lying to you. You can't trust this God. Now the reason why this argument is so compelling is not only because it begins to convince the woman that God doesn't really care for her well-being, that God isn't good enough, but it begins to hint that God might not have the ability to care for them either, that God isn't powerful enough. And this issue of power is so important because of the original role of woman established in chapter 2. Remember last week, if you were here, Chaplain Alex explained that when the woman is called a helper, that Hebrew word for helper, ezer, is actually a militaristic term that is only used in the Bible to describe the relationship of God coming to rescue other people in times of conflict. The woman is not meant to be a meek, submissive maker of sandwiches. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping no one thought that this morning. All right. The woman is meant to be a powerful ally capable of rescuing a man from danger. Okay, if that's the woman's role, that's her mission, then what exactly about the serpent's argument makes this so tempting? Well, the two humans have been currently placed in this garden oasis. It's actually more like a walled royal garden. And they are still surrounded by a hostile wilderness. It's not hidden. They can literally just like look over the walls. The only people on the planet. So Eden is surrounded by potential threats. And it would be rational then for the woman to be anxious about those potential threats. This, friends, is the human condition writ large. 
Because in case you haven't noticed, to be anxious is to be human. Anxiety is fundamental to the human condition because we are finite. Anxiety inevitably bubbles up in me when I cannot see or control the outcomes of my life. And to be clear, anxiety is not a sin. That is, it's not unjustifiable harm. Because even in the best seasons of our life, every one of us will experience degrees of anxiety. But the question becomes, what do you do with that anxiety? Will you trust that God is good enough and powerful enough to take care of your well-being? Or will you decide that you need to take matters into your own hands? Verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating. And that it was a lust to the eyes, and the tree was lovely to look at, and she took of its fruit and ate. Anxiety ate at the woman. And so she reached for and ate from the very thing she thought could relieve it. The thing that she believed would give her control over what she wanted What has that been for you? What is that for you? Because it's important to know that this story in Genesis is less about the past and more about the present. That the fall of humanity that began with our response to anxiety didn't just happen, it's happening. Every day, you and I are faced with the same dilemma. Do I trust that God is good enough and powerful enough to ensure my well-being, or do I need to become my own God? Will I reach for that forbidden fruit, that lie, that retribution, That manipulation, triangulation, objectification, the dehumanization, whatever I think I need to do in order to get the control over my situation. Will I compromise my own integrity, my own ethics, my own sense of self in order to gain the control that I think I need? To relieve that anxiety. This is the human condition. This is the story that's getting played out in Eden. And in my own life. Yet not only though can we reasonably imagine. This story as centered around the nature of anxiety. But by doing so we can also reimagine. How the man and woman have historically been described in their mistakes. You see, the way the moral lesson normally gets communicated is this. That the reason humanity fell was that the woman was too assertive and that the man was too passive. That the, that the, the woman just got too uppity and that the man didn't step up and put her in her place. But to pin the fall of humanity 
and the spread of sin itself on gender roles is even, I think, for a conservative Christian, utterly undermining of the origin story that is meant to tell us about the nature of sin and where it came from. It disconnects us from relationship with God. But not only that, if that's my understanding of the human failures here, it will lead me to believe some very sexist, if not misogynistic, conclusions. Yet when we look at the context of the woman being an Ezer, it's clear that she hasn't even operated outside of her gender role at all. Quite the opposite. The reason that she even considers the potential power of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is precisely because of her role as a powerful ally and protector of the man. And so when we witness the woman allow her anxiety to undermine her trust in God, we are not witnessing a distinctive female problem. We are witnessing a problem universal to all people. But notice the second half of verse 6 as well. And she also gave to her man, and he ate. When you picture this scene taking place, Who do you picture being there? Do you picture the woman alone with the serpent? I know I did. That's actually how a lot of classic art betrays it. You know, I just kind of imagine that Adam was, you know, maybe like a hundred trees down the way, just doing like Adam things. But it's clear from the narrative that the man, the Adam, is with the woman the whole time. Now, I think the serpent speaks to the woman precisely because of her role as the Ezer, as the protector. Like, if you want to get to the man, you got to go through her first. But I don't think it's helpful to imagine the man as dumb and passive, as if he's just going to say, okay, honey, whatever you say, oh, you want to give me a death root? Okay, this is great for dinner. That doesn't dignify the man any more than saying that the woman got too assertive. That's that's the trope of sitcoms. That's not the meaning of Genesis. No, not only was the man there the entire time, the man knew exactly what he was doing when he ate from the tree. Why do I think this? Because in 1 Timothy 2.14, someone writing in the name of the Apostle Paul says this, and Adam was not deceived But the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. The woman was deceived by the serpent, but the man was not deceived by either the serpent or even the woman. The man willingly ate the death fruit. Why would he possibly do this? Last week when we were introduced to the man and the woman for the first time. The man declares that the woman is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He is bonded to the woman unlike anything in all of creation. In fact, the language used to describe how the woman is built from man borrows this architectural language with this word sela, which means side as, as if the man and woman are two sides of an architectural structure leaning on each other for strength. 
But with this kind of architecture, if one falls, the whole thing collapses. Now, if the woman fell because she doesn't think God is good enough, I think the man falls because he doesn't believe that God is powerful enough to save the woman. The man knows that to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil will lead to death. And so when the woman eats of it, the man chooses the death sentence with her. He doesn't think she can be saved. And he would rather die than be without her. It is an act of solidarity. It's an expression of what they have become. And it is a foreshadowing of Jesus. In our first reading this morning, the Apostle Paul creates a parallel of Adam to Jesus in Romans 5. In verse 15 he says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. Notice that Paul does not blame the woman because the choice to disobey God was a corporate, communal choice. But more than that, in verse 14 he says, now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. How is Adam a symbol of Christ? Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. That is, Jesus is like Adam, but better. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Look at verse 18. Adam's one sin brought condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. When the first man, Adam, tasted death, it was in solidarity with the one he could not be without. But still, it was an act that could only confirm the death sentence for all of humanity. It was fatalistic. And yet the letter to the Hebrews says that it was by the grace of God that Jesus would also taste death. Because when Jesus, the last Adam, tasted death, it was also in solidarity with the ones that he could not be without. You. You. God came to earth and demonstrated solidarity with sinners, even unto death. But unlike the first Adam, it was Jesus' righteous act that canceled the death sentence on humanity. Christ's solidarity with us brought us to new life. And if God went to this extent to rescue humanity that we have the answer to anxiety that has not only been felt by the first woman, but by every person who has ever lived. And this answer is good news for my fears. God really does care for my well-being. And God is able to care for my well-being. 
you and I don't need to reach for that forbidden fruit, whatever that is, the thing we think we need to get control of our lives. When we look at the work of Jesus, the last Adam, we can know that God is powerful enough and that God is good enough. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Colin, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of questions. Y'all made my job really hard this morning. The concept of the Garden of Eden being walled in is new to me. I was raised to believe that at the time the entire earth was a paradise. Can you share where that concept comes from? Okay, so yeah, the, the whole earth being a paradise, I think probably comes from a conflation of, of, of Genesis 1 creation story merged with Genesis 2. Uh, but a lot of scholars... Uh, are pretty convinced that the the Garden of Eden is relatively small. Uh, We know this because they were placed in it at the beginning of the story, which means they had to come from some place that wasn't the Garden of Eden. Also, when the story ends, they get kicked out of the garden, which means that there's a finite limitation on the garden. Also, the way in which this garden is portrayed mimics the ancient royal gardens of the ancient Near East. And so that picture you actually saw, it's really funny, I could not find a good picture of what this looks like and that actually comes from the British show Good Omens right which is I'm like the show's terrible in so many ways but they get the Garden of Eden right they had some scholar actually look at that Um, and then also it helps make sense of the idea that in Genesis when they get kicked out and and there's Cain and Abel like Cain like goes finds a wife elsewhere and they're like wait so there's other people going on in the world and so that I think is the best explanation of the Genesis story is that it's finite and it's probably got some some barriers Okay, how do we reconcile a loving God with one that created the problematic tree and serpent in the first place? Yeah, oh, this is a great question. Um, I I, I flipped this on myself because I was kind of wrestling through that. And it's like, well, why would God make this serpent that that, can do something bad? And I'm like, well, shoot, why did God make me? Right? Like, like I, I, the serpent is not inherently evil. Like, the serpent is not pure evil, right? This is not a, not a, in this story, he's not a Satan figure yet, right? It's a, it's a part of God's creation that is using uh, God's free will to create harm. And this is the same way that God has created me. I'm not inherently evil, but I have used my free will to do harm. And so I go, well, why did God make me? And so I think this story is a, uh, is a picture of how God makes everything good, but then we can use things to corrupt God's goodness, and that's where evil comes from. Evil is not a creation of God. It is a corruption or a perversion of God's goodness. You really nailed that one, Colin. Good job. All right, last one. What are some actions we can take to put our trust in God when we are anxious? It's easy to say, put your trust in God, but how do we actually do it? Yeah, all right, because one of the things that you can, you can kind of fall into, right, is a, is a trust equals passivity, right? Like, I'm just going to trust God, and that's kind of like a wishful thinking thing, like I hope it works out kind of trust. Uh, I, I think one of the, the steps you can take as you're, as you're, you're dealing with anxiety, because again, anxiety is not wrong. If you're a person who is more anxious, either because like chemicals in your brain or whatever, you're just more anxious, you're, you're not a bad Christian, all right? So the anxiety is normal, and all of us got to deal with different levels of anxiety. What we're going to do with it is going to be the important part. So take your anxiety and one, uh, meditate on the promises of God in Scripture. 
So those things where God promises you. Meditate on any place in your life uh, where you feel like God has been faithful to you in the past. It's, this is a very common thing in, in the Hebrew scripture to say, look, we know you're anxious now. Remember how God has come through with you before. God can do it again. And then the third thing is ask yourself, where are you actively being faithful in this situation? So what are you actively doing where you can say, look, this thing I'm doing I know is aligning me with the will and love of God in this situation. So I know I'm actively doing something which then invites the synergy of the Spirit to, to make a way in your situation. So then you know you're just not just being passive. Those are three suggestions off the top of my head. Excellent suggestions, I would say. Um, There are a ton, ton, ton more questions. So Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live and Instagram. So make sure you're following Parkside on your social media app of choice. Great. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Friends.